All right, here we are, uh, session one of the Zohar, Congregation Har Shalom. Uh, let's start with a blessing over Torah study. Uh, if you can't follow, just say Amen. Baruch Ata Adonai, Eloheinu Melech Haolam, Asher Kiddishanu B'mitzvotav, V'tzivanu La'asok B'divrei Torah. Amen. All right, so I'll start with a little background about the Zohar uh, and Kabbalah before we dive into some of these texts. Uh, the Zohar is a 13th century Spanish Jewish text um, written by a man named Moshe de Leon. There is a controversy about who wrote it, as there is with most things in Judaism, a controversy. Um, and the controversy is that it's attributed to Shimon Bar Yochai, who's a second century rabbi. Um, and Moshe de Leon said he found it in a cave uh, in 12, around 1270 uh, in medieval Spain. So now you might say, okay, well, that, I could follow that. He, found it in the cave, but there was this scholar named uh, Gershom Sholem, who was like the preeminent Kabbalah scholar in Judaism, uh, who he wrote about, you know, a hundred years ago or so. Um, really hard to read. It's very hard to read, very <laughs> academic stuff. He said, he, one of the things he said is um, that, uh, that Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism, is, is nonsense. Stut is the word he used, uh, but the study of Kabbalah is scholarship. That's right? And so that's, that's how he viewed it. He wanted to study it academically and, and figure out, but there's a lot more than just nonsense in here. Um, so but anyway, what, what uh, Gershom Sholem said was that the Zohar was most definitely written by Moshe de Leon in the, in the year, around the year 1270. Um, and there are several reasons that he says that. One is there was this guy uh, named Isaac of Akko who was looking for the Zohar. He was like doing a search for it in the 13th, in the early, uh, late, late 13th century. And uh, he came across uh, Moshe de Leon and Moshe de Leon said, yes, I have the Zohar and I'm gonna, I'm gonna give it to you. Uh, and then he died. And then uh, Isaac of Akko went back to his wife, and he said, "Where's the Where's the Zohar?" Uh, and, and he said, "She said, well, he, he had passed away and he doesn't have it, um, but uh, he wrote every single word of the Zohar. He wrote it. He wrote it. My husband, Why was Moshe Deleon, wrote meaning the." To pretend that it's something that was already well, there's, that's a really good question, right? Like. A lot of medieval Jewish texts, and even you know later ones, even early modern Jewish texts, are attributed to other authors. Um, so one reason might be it's given more authority, it's taken more seriously. If it's you know Shimon Bar Yochai who wrote this book and not just me, you know. Um, so that's number one. Uh, number two, perhaps he was inspired by Shimon Bar Yochai. Or maybe he had a mystical experience where he was visited by the ghost, the spirit of Shimon Bar Yochai, who inhabited him and gave him the answers to um, 
you know, gave him the text, gave it over to him. So maybe he conceived of it as if he, as if it was written for, by Shimon Bar Yochai. Um, but often in medieval texts, in medieval Jewish texts, they'll attribute things to, to people. Um, there's another really famous work of Kabbalah called the Sefer Yetzirah, the Book of Formation, and that's attributed to Abraham from the Bible. So, you know, Abraham. Abraham. Well, so that you know, you take it more seriously. If it was written by Abraham, you know, it's like, whoa, I gotta. And then Ecclesiastes is attributed to King Solomon. King Solomon, which. Uh scholars don't buy that. <laughs> I don't know about that. King Solomon, they had invented the fountain pen. <laughs> <laughs> right, so, the, so that's number one reason that he thought it wasn't written by Shimon Bar Yochai, or, yeah, by Shimon Bar Yochai. Number two reason is, uh, if you read, as I, I've been reading the Zohar a page a day for the past year, uh, for the last 402 days, tonight will be 403, I think, um, and if you read it, you see uh, all of these words that seem to come from Spanish, like medieval <laughs> Spanish. And, you know, it's like, imagine that. Hmm, I, I wonder why Shimon Bar Yochai, second century uh, Israelite, you know, Palestinian Jew, uh, why he was writing words in medieval Spanish, I don't know, you know. So that's number two reason. And then the number three reason is, uh, and I, I don't know if I brought one of these texts today, but uh, it, he seems to, the author seems to not understand Israeli geography. Uh, and, and they'll like, they'll travel from one town to another town that are supposed to be like hundreds of miles away in like a day, you know? And, and so it's clear that there's some misunderstanding of the, of the geography. So taking those three things into account, Shimon, uh, Gershom Shalom said, probably written in 13th century by uh, Moshe de Leon. Um, yeah. Not to interrupt, but one of my books was written about Spain in the year 1050. There you go. That last book that I wrote, yeah. Very close to this, to this period. Yeah. But there was, a, there, was a, an, there was a time in Spain, in early medieval Spain, that's called the the golden, the golden of Medina, uh, which is this, the golden state where you had Jews and Muslims and Christians kind of living together in peace right. in Spain That's for like this, this short window. Um, and you know, that ended, obviously. We, got, we have the Crusades and the Inquisition. Um, but you know, it was this window, and I think that's part of the reason that the Zohar was able to emerge during this time. It was this kind of flourishing of culture and um, philosophy. Uh, so, so that's kind of the history of the Zohar itself. The Zohar is considered the number one, um, uh, kind of the most important text of Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism. Before the Zohar, and before around that period, um, Jewish mysticism wasn't called Kabbalah. There was a different kind of Jewish mysticism called Merkava mysticism or chariot mysticism, which were the rabbis who were trying to recreate the vision of Ezekiel through meditations and very complex breathing exercises. And, and they would um, tunnel down, it would say, into the Merkava, into the chariot, and have this experience where they would 
ascend from heaven to heaven to heaven and they'd have to give passwords to angels to pass through uh-huh. different gateways and finally they'd come to God at this top gateway. So that's, that's Merkava mysticism. Um, and, but then Kabbalah really started around this period. Merkava um, is like Merkava? Uh-huh, yeah. So, the, right, that, so it's just a different pronunciation of the, of the Is same. that the same time when yoga started? I, uh, I think yoga came, was much earlier than that. I, I, I'm not quite sure. But mm. Merkava mysticism uh, is second to eighth century, something like that. And then you have, so, and, so that, yeah, it's all around the Merkava, which is this chariot, and mm-hmm. it's this kind of, um, the chariot of God, that the God rides on. And so you're trying to have this vision of the chariot, which also contains all of these different palaces and places that you can visit. Um, and very roughly, it's like astral projection. Have you heard of astral projection? So like the, the rabbis were basically astrally, astrally projecting into these different realms. Um, and there's a great story from the from the Talmud about four rabbis who entered the Pardes, which means that they were doing this astral projection. Um, and it says that when when they come to the columns of pure marble, they're not supposed to say water, water. It's this weird thing, you know, um, meaning they're not supposed to. Re- recognize the separation between the upper waters and the lower waters, and because in the upper realms it's all one. Um, and then it says, uh, when, they, when this ascent was over, uh, one, of, one of the guys who went up died uh, and never came back to his body. One of them uh, became crazy. One of them uh, became an apostate, meaning he left Judaism and he ended up becoming a dualist and believing in Gnosticism and that there were two gods, a dark god and a light god. Uh, and then only one of them, Rabbi Akiva, got out unscathed. So that's kind of the prototypical story from Merkava mysticism. But it's also applied to later Kabbalistic stuff as well, and to the Zohar and stuff. Um, but what it's talking about is the dangers of this kind of study. Like they say, some people say you're not supposed to study it until you're 40. Some people say you're not supposed to study it until you're 20. Some people say you're not supposed to study it until you're married. Um, but there's, there is a certain fear of studying these texts because if you, don't, if you don't understand them correctly, you might end up either dying or going crazy or leaving Judaism and, and practicing some other religion. Um, right, so... I'll talk about the guy who went crazy. Uh, They said that he was found on the seashore holding up his two fingers to the horizon and going, there's only two fingers separating the upper waters and the lower waters. It's all one. Everything is one. That's right. Well, it's right. Conceptually, if you go up to that realm, you know, it's all one. But when you live in this world, you have to live by the rules of this world, which is that we're separate, right? That, That we're not... We're not all one when we're living, you know, when you're living in the world. So, um, so that's kind of pre-Kabbalah. And then Kabbalah comes along with the Zohar, and there's some amazing ideas that come out. One is uh, the idea of the Shekhinah, which is the, 
the presence of God in this world, the imminent God, God is that, that's here with us that we can feel. And this is equated with the goddess, feminine, which is a pretty amazing thing given the idea of a goddess had kind of gone underground for hundreds of years. Um, so that's idea number one. Idea number two is a very philosophical one, which is that you have Maimonides, not maybe a hundred years earlier, talking about God as being completely undefinable, completely infinite, beyond any understanding that we can have, beyond time, beyond space, beyond any definition. And then Maimonides says, well, how can we relate to that God? Because through our intellect, through our mind, because Maimonides is like the first philosopher, you know, real deep philosopher from an Aristotelian tradition. Um, through your mind, you can relate. Well, that's not the easiest way to relate to this infinite God that's beyond time and beyond space. And so the Kabbalists said, well, actually, yeah, we agree that God is beyond time, beyond space. It's called the Ein Sof, which is, means literally without end, the infinite. Um, but God created these emanations of God. The infinite created these emanations of God, which are like infinite, but not quite as infinite as Ein Sof, um, to be like a, a ladder connecting the connecting the God that's beyond, you know, beyond time and space and completely unrelatable to us, um, right? If you, if you read the book of Job, it talks about, you know, God talks about, you know, Job is suffering and God talks about like, oh, you know, are you concerned with all these great problems of the universe? Were you there when I created the universe? Do you, do you have to worry like I do about pushing the stars around their orbits, you know? And, and, and so what it's saying is, hey, uh, in a way, like God is so beyond, so transcendent that that humans can't, that God can't relate to humans. That there's no relationship there. So, like, what would be the point of prayer? What would be the point of, of you know any kind of religion if God is so beyond? What? And so the Kabbalists say, well, you need to bridge that gap. And they do that by these emanations, which are called spherot, which are these uh, energy centers, often equated with energy centers, or like they're like the chakras in, in uh, Hindu philosophy or whatever. Um, and they are present in everything in the world. So each one of us has these 10 energy centers in us. Uh, every object in the world has these 10 energy centers. Um, and ultimately it goes all the way back up to the infinite, um, but you have to pass through these energy centers. There's a great text from the Zohar that I explained to you guys earlier that maybe I'll be able to explain again, which talks about the first verse of Genesis that says, Bereshit bara Elohim, which is usually read as, in the beginning God created. But you can read each letter uh, differently, and, and the Zohar does, and it says, Be can mean in, but it can also mean through or by means of. And Reshit can mean beginning, but it can also mean wisdom. So now it's not in the beginning, but it's through wisdom. Bara, he created. Well, who created? The Zohar says that's blank. <laughs> the blank created Elohim, God. In the beginning, blank created God. Or through beginning, sorry, through wisdom, blank created God. So they reread the entire beginning of the Torah. 
And basically what it's saying is this infinite that's beyond time, beyond space, that's why it's not named in the, in, in the text. In be, so that gave rise through wisdom, which is equated with the logos. I don't know if anybody's heard of the logos, which is kind of pure information associated with the Torah, associated with like just pure thought, created God, meaning the accessible parts of God, which are really just forces of nature, like um, expansion and contraction um, and balance between. So that's kind of what the Zohar does. And, the, and what a lot of what the Zohar does is it's reading the Torah and showing how the Torah is really just all about this divine drama that's happening, that um, how the infinite is creating uh, the world through these channels uh, and coming down to the world. But there's also a lot of like really folky, like um, mystical, supernatural stuff in the Zohar. There's some sexist stuff, you know, about about women and um, and yet there's some really revolutionary ideas here, like the idea of the goddess. So, do we want to just jump in and study a little bit? Um, you have a question, here? Yeah, I was curious. Um, so. Then the, uh, the, Mer the Merkaba um, mysteries, those would be, was there anything predating that? that um... Predating Merka Merkaba mysticism? Yeah. Um, not really. I mean, that's really the earliest, the earliest form of Jewish mysticism. And did they have a central manuscript? Or would the Zohar be They either? had, yes, there, were, there are several, uh, there are several texts of Merkaba mysticism that you could uh, read. I could show you a book that has some of them. Uh, it's called uh, Meditation and Kabbalah by Arya Kaplan. Um, and there are a couple of chapters that he translates some of those texts. So they're very kind of cryptic. Um, you know, they say, they will say things like, you know, for then you go to this heaven and you'll see this angel. And when you come there, say this password and that password, and then you'll pass through and then you'll come to the next level and then you'll see this next angel, but don't do this or this. This reminds me of my computer. <laughs> it reminds you of your computer. <laughs> In what way? With the passwords. With the passwords, yes. It's a lot of passwords, yeah. It's like, it's like clicking through, right? But... Um, so there are some of these texts, and I can show you some of them maybe after the class. Uh, there aren't a huge amount that are still around, uh, but there are you know, four, three or four that I know pretty well. Um, and then the, within the Talmud itself, which is the text, you know, the, the main rabbi the, that the rabbis wrote from the second century to the eighth century, uh, it's full of little allusions to this. Uh, to Merkava mysticism. And there's, in fact, a whole chapter of uh, Tractate Chagiga, um, which is one of the tractates of the Talmud that talks about Merkava mysticism and when you're allowed to discuss it and when you're not allowed to discuss it and some of the secrets that it reveals. Um, and I think that's also in, I'm not, I'm not sure, but I think that might also be in the meditation cover. I can loan it to you. Uh, did I answer? Yeah. Good. Other questions before we dive in? All right. Well, um, how do you equate this yearning to find out with contemporary uh, science? 
Well, I think it's, it, what's interesting is that in some ways, um, the accounts of the creation of the world from Kabbalah and the Zohar in particular, I'm not talking about Merkava mysticism, which is, I, I could address that some other time, but, but at least in the Zohar, a lot of their accounts of creation are eerily similar to a Big Bang sort of theory. Mm. Um, there's a great book by Daniel Mack called God and the Big Bang. Um, mm. And the, so I'll give you an example, right? It, it talks about, in here. let me see if I can find this. And it wasn't going to start with this text, but why not? Okay, uh, the page that says 370 on the left-hand side, it says, Come and see. When the Blessed Holy One wished to, wished to create worlds, so first of all, worlds means universes, and we've just started thinking about the idea that there might be a multiverse like within the last 20, 30 years, right? That, that scientists have actually started to, to take this idea of the multiverse seriously. So that's number one right here. It says worlds, God created worlds, not just one world. He generated a single concealed light, forming, spreading, becoming the higher world. This supernal light extended <coughs> further, fashioning an artisan, a light that does not shine, fashioning the lower world. Being a light that does not shine, it yearns to join above and yearns to join below. And by joining below, it joins illuminatingly the juncture above. So this isn't, um, this isn't the best uh, example of this. But basically what it says is that God creates this spark <laughs> that expands and becomes the universe. Which is very similar to an idea, the idea of the Big Bang. <clears throat> that God created, that the creation of the world isn't, oh, in seven days, you know, God created, uh, but it's <clears throat> God created this spark first that became the whole universe. And that's how, that's how the whole universe started. So in some ways, it's actually much closer <coughs> to modern science than many other religious texts. Now, I would say what I like to do with the things that don't really jive at all with my idea of modern science, like, you know, they say that um, between <laughs> sunset and midnight, the demons rule the world, um, right? Now, I don't take that, I can't take that literally. So what I do is I metaphoricize those passages. And I look at the Kabbalah as a sort of extended poetry, that it's a, it's a book of poetic insights about the universe. Now, poetry is not meant to be taken literally, right? Poetry, you know, if you say, my love is a rose, well, no, my love isn't, like, literally a rose, right? That, that, that's a metaphor, right? That, that, that's not supposed to be taken literally. And they act, in fact, they use the, the word rose. They say, they say uh, Israel is a rose among the thorns. Our people is a rose among the thorns. Well, that's weird. Um, 
So you're not supposed to say you're not supposed to say oh yeah we're like a, Israel is the people of Israel are literally a rose. No, we're not literally a rose. We are. It's a it's a metaphor, right? And so a lot of this is a, is is meant to be taken metaphorically, and not literally. And a lot of this is meant to be um, is to is meant to appeal to your heart more than your head. Does that make sense? <laughs> All right, so let's let's start with the text that I had in mind to start with, and then uh, and then we'll get maybe eventually to that other text. So often, so I've been reading the Zohar for the past year, like a page a day, and often the Zohar is it will the way the structure usually works is it'll be like a little bit of uh, narrative about these rabbis hanging out and going on a journey. Usually they're like on their way from one place to another place. Uh, and it'll be Rabbi Shimon who supposedly wrote the Zohar uh, and his Hevraya, his, his uh, group, his friends. And they'll be you know traveling here, traveling there, and they'll meet strange people along the way like donkey drivers and children. And uh, you know they'll like come out with these mystical deep ideas and they'll be like, ah, the donkey driver is blessed with supernal knowledge and um, and so it's there are these narrative sections and then there are these very deep kind of uh, sections that are interpreting the text of the Zohar or the Torah and then there are, and there are other sections that are related to that which are uh, what's called theosophy which is talking about the dynamics of the divine world so all of these emanations these spherot that come from God and how they relate to one another and how um, they make it so that the flow of the divinity can come from the infinite to the earth. So this section here that I want to start with, is, uh, it's where it says 313 on the right. Um, this is from the Zohar, part one, page 145b. It starts with a narrative section. Um, somebody want to take it? Adam, how about you start? They walked on. <clears throat> they walked on. Okay, they walked on. And they were walking. Rabbi y Yoshe said, Certainly everything the Blessed Holy One does in the world reflects the mystery of wisdom. All to manifest supernatural wisdom to human beings, so from that act they will learn mysteries of wisdom. All is fitting. All his actions, ways of Torah... All, uh, all his actions, ways of Torah, for the ways of Torah are the ways of the Blessed Holy One. Even a tiny word contains, a count, contains countless ways, paths, mysteries of supernal wisdom. Keep going? Nope. Uh, so that's, that's really what I, I wanted to get that little section there, which is kind of an introduction to the ideas, the idea that the Zohar bases itself on, which is that every single letter of the Torah every single you know, dot above a letter, you know, there's some dot, letters that have dots above them in the Torah, has, a, has infinite meanings that we can glean from. And, and they even go even further here. Usually it's just limited to like the Torah, but they're going even further here and saying that everything in the world that we see is actually a garment hiding some deeper truths that lie beneath. So even when you look at something that happens in your life, you know, a, a, an incident or, uh, you know, a person that happens to show up at a certain moment, that there's this idea that everything is filled with 
infinite levels of deep meaning that you have to kind of delve into to really understand. Um, and they're doing it about the, they're really focusing on the Torah and, they'll, and they will take a, you know, one word or one letter and they'll like make a whole mystical interpretation out of that one word or one letter. Um, so they're focusing on the, on the Torah generally, but they're, they also kind of interpret the world a little bit too. And I think that they're, the mystical mindset that the Zohar gives us is that we should look at everything in our world as if it's ultimately meaningful and that we should be constantly looking for the meaning behind everything in our lives. They being the two central characters? They being the, uh, the authors of the Zohar, okay. whoever, that, whoever that may be. Um, it's postulated that Moshe de Leon couldn't have written this, probably couldn't have written this whole thing by himself, so he probably had a, some companions, friends, who wrote it with him. So that's when I say they, that's really what I mean. But that's also, I'm also referring to the characters in the story, Rabbi Yossi and whoever was the other, who's he, who's he hanging out with? Oh, Rabbi Yitzchak, uh, right? So they could also be referring to the characters in the story that bring up this idea. Um, and the, uh, but, right, so we can start delving into, you know, their names and why they're there. And, um, but yeah, the, I think the, the underlying idea behind this text and the Zohar in general is that, we, that there's so many deeper levels to reality to the Torah, to our lives, that we don't often look at. This other text we were reading uh, compared uh, the written Torah, the physical Torah that we have in the Ark, to um, a garment, like a piece of clothing, that the Torah is actually completely non-physical, is ethereal, is like this pure information that created the cosmos, that it like makes up the cosmos, like in a way like, we live in the matrix, like the entire universe is binary, is, you know, is encoded, right? So everything is encoded and that code is the Torah. Um, and so this Torah, this pure information needed to come down to the earth. And so the way it did that was it had to make itself physical. So it took on, it, it put on a garment, which is the physical scroll there that we have. But, that, but, the, but this other text from the Zohar that we read earlier says, um, if you look just at the garment, if you just look at, at the written words, uh, the basic story, you're missing the entire point, and that you're not understanding at all. And that you shouldn't just be looking at the garment, you should be looking at what's under the garment. Well, what's under the garment? The body. But then they say, well, they, even there's even deeper levels, right? What's, under the, what's un, inside the body? It's the soul. And, what's, and, there's act, and then is there anything deeper in the soul? Yes, there's the soul of the soul. <laughs> Right? So that there are all these deeper and deeper levels in each thing that you can go down to to get to the essence, which ends up always being the infinite. Right? It's like, have you seen like matryoshka dolls? Right? The, the, nest, the, 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 the Russian nesting dolls? Right? So, so the written Torah as we see it there is like the top level of nesting doll. But you have to take off level after level after level to get to that kernel. Um, but there are, according to the Zohar, it's infinite levels, infinite openings for interpretation. I find it fascinating how this um, idea of looking at you know deeper symbolic levels is, is so connected to what uh, 
lot of modern day mystics are saying, and I'm thinking of Carolyn Miss in particular, who talks a lot about, you know, when when we look at our lives and our experiences, and and there can be pain, a lot of painful experiences there, and and she talks about how it's really important to look at the symbolic meaning of our experiences. I mean, it's interesting. That, I mean, it's an interesting debate. I think too. Like, you know, when somebody loses somebody, uh, you know, and is in mourning, I don't want to go to them and say, "Let's look at the of deeper. Course. What's the deeper meaning here of your loss?" You know, as a rabbi, that's like no, no, number one, right? Right. 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 But yet, we—that's what we ultimately need to do in our lives right but but you can't force that on somebody and and sometimes there are things that happen that you really can't find the meaning um or or, you know it's almost impossible to find the meaning Uh, you're going to say something hazel Uh, the torah is essentially a storybook about it's different people and they're very human no, but we can relate to them easily at this time. Now, what in that, and in our own lives, and I, if you've been watching television, uh, the upheaval of the human creature right now, what is the spiritual kernel? But I mean, I think what the, what the idea that we're talking about is that, that it's not just stories. Right, that that right. if you look at the stories and you just say, oh, okay, this is a literal story, right? And this is part of the problem with fundament- a fundamentalist view of scripture, with, with a literalist reading of the Torah, which a lot of people do, right? They say, oh, yes, this is, a, this is not a storybook. This is a history book, right? And they're reading it as history, and they're saying, oh, we have proof that Noah's Ark actually existed because they found it, you know? Or, or, you know, the idea that's, that you taking it completely literally and you're looking at it as a history book and you're taking the stories as being the what it's all about but really what it's all about is the ideas that give rise to the stories which are like one level and then even beyond that the ideas that give rise to the ideas and then the, the, the ideas that give rise to the ideas that give rise to the ideas right that it's that it can go deeper and deeper and deeper into finding Meaning, and I said to this group who was here earlier that it's like a Rorschach inkblot, the Torah, mm-hmm. that you can look at it and you see yourself. It's your own interpretation of the world that you see within your interpretation of the Torah. And so every, and I, it's also like a mirror. Like every word of the Torah is like a mirror in which you see yourself reflected, and you and and you mm-hmm. you That's impose true. the meaning there, right? So. How does it relate to current events? How does it relate to some of the horrible things that are happening in the world? Well, um, on one level, you could say it's so horrible we can't find any meaning in it at all. On another level, you can say, well, these, these events are the face value level, and we can go deeper and figure out you know, some of the, some of the, the more uh, deeper meanings behind what's happening in current events. I think that's the that would be the the mystical way of looking at you know what's happening right now is would to say, say well what's people, happening yeah. you know 
in a deeper spiritual level, you know, in a meaningful a level of meaning. But maybe it's too early to do that, right, at this point, and to actually assign, you know, to, to, to say, okay, there's meaning here. As I was saying to Barack, you know, like when somebody just loses a loved one, you don't say, oh, you know, they were meant to die. You know, like, that's horrible, right? Or, or there's some deeper meaning behind their death. Well, no, and sometimes maybe you can't find a deeper meaning. What are you going to say, Hazel? Go ahead. You're going to add yeah, something? I think you pretty much said it. Great. Uh, that uh, the deeper meaning, uh, whether the human race is becoming more aware, or whether we've always been stupid and will continue to be stupid. <laughs> it's a good question. I mean, is are, the, is the are we evolving? Right, yeah, does the arc of history, history tend towards, really, uh, yeah. you know, sanity? <clears throat> you know, I don't know, there's arguments to be made on both sides. There's a great, there's a, there's a um, scholar named, Pinker, I think it's Stephen Pinker, and he wrote a book yeah. just recently, I think last year or the year before, uh, about how we're living in the most peaceful era of human history, and that there's less violence now than ever before in human history. Right. And he goes through and he proves it, you know, with sociological, demographic, historical things. And so he makes an argument that actually we are progressing as, as a species towards something better. There are people who make arguments on the other side. I don't know, you know. Um, my hope, and especially as a rabbi, and I have to kind of have this hope, is that, that the ultimate destiny of humankind is um, goodness, you know, that the world is tending towards something good, uh, toward evolving in a, in, toward being more inclusive to more people, better, uh, you know, inclusivity, all of that stuff. I don't know. So, uh, should we read another, another one of these little snippets here? It's best studied at midnight, by the way. <laughs> they talk about. Uh, it, it, you can listen to some of my previous classes. I did a whole text about midnight from the Zohar. And they really say that at midnight, that's when you're supposed to study the Zohar. And, and, and one of our rabbis at Shari Jahab did a, did a midrash on that. <laughs> what was the midrash? That, that the, the uh, tradition of studying after midnight, um, the, what do you call it, Chayel, Tikkun, tikkun Leil, yeah. yeah. That it started after the coffee trade um, uh, included at the crossroads. Outside. Oh yes, there's a, there's a. I know I exactly where was this a rabbi that gave this teaching? Jane Lipman. So so I know exactly where she got that. There's an article about coffee that is, is an academic article about coffee and the rise of the the midnight study ritual, a Kabbalistic study ritual. Uh, and so she got that from, yeah. she, you know, she didn't just make that up. That's okay. actually, there's a whole scholarly article about that uh, that traces the, the advent of coffee and, and coffee houses in, in uh, Tzfat in particular in 16th century um, Israel. Now this is even earlier 
than that, right? So it was before the coffee. Uh, <laughs> but so in one of my previous classes, we studied a text about uh, these rabbis who said, do you have a, a rooster? They come to this inn and they say, do you have a rooster to wake us up at midnight? Uh, and they say, no, but we, have, we invented this water clock. And so, and, and they talk about the water clock and how the, the water will go, you know, make the sound at midnight. And then they say that, um, and they say that King David used to wake up in the middle of the night because he had a, a harp that he put above his bed, and there would be a north wind that would come and blow against his harp at midnight. That would wake him up, and he would get up, and he would study Torah for the rest of the night. So, so. I think that the, it, pre, it does predate coffee, but it became a really a more viable option <laughs> with, once coffee was, was put out there. Should, should we, does anybody have any more comments before we uh, move to the next text? Sure, Todd. This will be for the Swiss decaf process. <laughs> All right, so let me find this. collection of excerpts taken directly from... From the Zohar. From the Zohar. Correct. From its original form. Yes, translated by Professor Daniel Matt, who is a, a mentor of mine, and, and uh, he was hired by the Pritzker Foundation to do a full translation about well, 15 years ago or so, and he's about to be finished with it. Um, and it's an amazing translation because he has very extensive footnotes that really help you read it in a way that you really can't if you're just, if you haven't studied like all of the texts of Judaism and the Talmud and, and the Midrash, and the, you'll kind of be lost in Zohar. But he refers to all these things and tells you like where to look um, and it's immensely helpful for somebody who doesn't have the background. So, um, all right, so this is, uh, it says, it was, yeah. I'm sorry, it was translated from what language? Uh, Aramaic, Zoharic Aramaic. So the Zohar was written ostensibly by Moshe de Leon in 13th century Spain, but he wrote it in Aramaic, which was the language that, um, sorry, uh, Shimon bar Yochai, supposedly, who was the supposed author of the Zohar from the second century, that was the language that he supposedly spoke. And it's the language that the Talmud was written in. So, it's, it's kind of a made-up Aramaic. With um, medieval Spanish with thrown in. With <laughs> some medieval Spanish words thrown in, and, and there's Hebrew, but the Hebrew is really the qu quoting uh, scriptural passages, like from the Torah and the, and the prophets and all these things. But most of it is this Aramaic, which, is, which was kind of invented by uh, Moshe de Leon. His, his own version. His own version of Aramaic, having read the Talmud, which is written in Aramaic. So he was probably very versed in the language, you know, in Aramaic, but he uh, created his own, you know, because there were certain words that he, he didn't have, so he would create, he would create words out of Spanish and, and you know, Castilian words. Um, and so that's, that's the original language that the Zohar was written in. And his it's translated directly from that by Professor His Mann. name is De, De Leon. De Leon, yes. It means that he comes from Leon. Leon. Correct. Which is in France. 
maybe that's where his family came from or something from Leon. Or maybe at, at the time it was considered part of Spain. I don't know. Um, that's beyond my knowledge. Is, is Aramaic a gender-specific language? Like, Meaning? Uh, like Spanish, like every object has either a masculine or feminine. There are gender, there are aspects of the grammar that are gender, yes. Um, but uh, less so than Hebrew. Hebrew is? Highly gender. It's, if you say you, you have to say you male or you female. Um, but in Aramaic, that kind of gets swallowed. And uh, you could say aunt, which means you, male or female. So that kind of, that, so Aramaic moves a little bit more away from the gender, but it still has gendered elements to it, yeah. Um, so do I want to read another, another little piece uh, where it says page 78 on the left-hand side. Um, can I get somebody to read from where it says they walked on? They walked on. When they reached a field, they sat down. Raising their eyes, they saw a mountain whose peak was being scaled by strange creatures. Rabbi Yitzchak became frightened. Rabbi Elazar asked him, why are you afraid? He replied, I see that this mountain is fierce, and I see these creatures who are strange, and I'm scared they'll attack us. Right, so we all get the scene here. They're, they're walking along on one of their many journeys. Talking, if you look up above, they're like talking about interpretations of a Torah passage. And all of a sudden they stop, and they reach this field, and they look up, and there's this mountain, and there are these strange like creatures Climbing up the mountain, I view them as like the way, my imagination has them like be like Gole, Golem from from uh, from the Lord of the Rings, like these Golem type like humanoid creatures that are like climbing up the mountain, like or like uh, uh, the vampires from the Strains show on TV, yeah, very the, the fast vampires or something. That's the way I I, I imagine them. Yeah, but you know you can create your own imagery if you want. So, right, so they look up and they see these strange, strange creatures and it's, it's Yitzchak and Elazar and Yitzchak gets really scared and Elazar says, why are you afraid? Um, now, uh, did you, can you continue on? He said, if someone is frightened, it is the sins he possesses of which he should be frightened. Come and see. These aren't those fierce creatures who used to haunt the mountains. Right, so so this is actually a pretty deep idea here that that it's not the creatures themselves that you should be afraid of; it's your own inner demons that you should be afraid of. Um, and so this is. Uh, why don't you continue on and see if this is relevant? He opened saying, "These are the sons of Zibion, Aya and Anna." That is, the Anna who in the wilderness discovered the Yemi. Um, mm -hmm. This Genesis 36, 24, this verse has been established, but come and see. Uh, 
not those of whom is written, the Amim formerly dwelt there, in Deuteronomy 2.10, but rather those of whom scripture states, who in the wilderness discovered the Yamim. Spelled so, Yamim. Yud-mem-mem. Yamim, that's what the creatures are called. That's what they're called. Now the question is, it, there, there are different creatures that are referred to as, as Yemim or Yamim, Yemim here. Um, mm. And are these the same creatures? Let's look, what I always like to do is when I'm feeling a little confused is to look at his footnotes because that's the awesome thing about this translation. So I would look at um, footnote number 526. Anna, who in the wilderness discovered the Yemim, the verse concludes while tending the donkeys of his father Zibion. The word Yamim is unique and its meaning uncertain. It has been rendered variously as mules and hot springs. Mules and hot springs. <laughs> hot springs, yes. Well, right, so quite a combination. It's yeah. a, quite a combination, but, but what it doesn't say here um, is that the root yam, uh, yud vav mem is, an, is a root that, that is related to this. And the word yamim uh, means years. Uh, and so there's some connection to time here um, and the years. Um, and so there's this uncertain word, yamim, yamim, and they're, and they're trying to figure out what it is. And are these the same in these two different texts, the one from Deuteronomy and the one from Genesis, are these the same creatures that they're talking about here? And are these the same creatures as the ones that we just saw? So why don't you continue reading, and then maybe we'll read some more of these footnotes, too. Would they these, be human? these were strange creatures, for yeah. when Cain was banished from the face of the earth, as it, as it said, here, you have driven me today from the face of the earth, Genesis 4.14, and similarly, he dwelled in the land of Nod, as they have established among his descendants were those inhabiting the side of spirits, whirlwinds, and demons. These existed because as the day was about to be sanctified, enduring spirits were created from that side, bodiless specters. These derived neither from the Sabbath day nor the sixth day, both of whom remain uncertain about them, so they are sustained by neither one. And so there's this idea that God created everything, and God was about to create this other creature, but then the sun set and it became Shabbat, and so he created their spirits, but he didn't create bodies for them. Uh -huh. And so these became demons, the demons of the world, that are these bodiless spirits that wander around um, at all times. Now, it's not no coincidence they're talking about the sixth day and the seventh day because the word here is yamim, which is related to the word for year, but is related to time, right? Like a day or a, um, or a year. Uh, and so the, these, um, these, what do you call them? These demons are related to the idea of time. Time. Uh, of time. Time. Now, I want to take this to another text. Let me find the right one. 
Uh, okay, this is where it says 329. Somebody else want to read? Where it says, Rabbi Yosei said. Which page? Uh, 329, it says, on the right side. Stephanie, you want to read? Sure. Rabbi Yosei said, certainly so, for it is not written the day of Israel drew near to die, but rather days. Right, so they're, they're referring back to this quote from the Torah where it says, the days of Israel drew near to die. It's talking about Jacob, who's also named Israel, his death. And it doesn't say the day of his death drew near, but it says the days of Israel drew near to die. Now, does a person die on several days? In a single hour, a single moment? He dies and departs from the world. However, we have learned as follows. When the Blessed Holy One desires to retrieve his spirit, all those days in which a human has existed in this world are convened before him and reckoned. As they approach him to be reckoned, the person dies, and the Blessed Holy One receives his spirit. The breath that he exhaled and blew into him, he retrieves for himself. So, so there's this vision of when you're about to die, all of the days of your life come before you, right? This is kind of like this idea. I, I, my, my guess when I, when I first read this was this is related to this idea that your life passes before you as you're dying. Um, maybe they got it from here, I don't know, could be. Maybe the Zohar and that legend got it from the same place. But the idea here is that all of these days of your life kind of become personified and come before you and they uh, are, it says, are convened before him and reckoned, that they are almost testifying in like a court um, and each day of your life kind of steps up and, and gives a Ooh. Kind of a lot of it gives, Well, it depends on how long you live, I guess, right? Um, they give a testimony about how, basically, who you were on that day, right? And so there's this this idea that that our that the time that we live in um, becomes part of us, but also sets up, you know, where we're going to be in our lives um, and where we're going to go. Uh, so back to this idea of the yamim, right? He sees these these creatures which are related to this idea of time and years climbing up the mountain and he gets scared and the guy says well no you shouldn't be scared of that you should be scared of what's inside of you right meaning you should be scared of the um, mistakes that you made in the in your in the time that you've lived right you should be scared of your yamim your years not of these demonic creatures um, and that all of our life kind of follows uh, our, our, uh, our past stories uh, until we've kind of rectified them and done tshuva, done repentance. Um, now the creatures are ourselves. The creatures are our are, are, are years. They're, they're, our, they're how we spent our lives, right? These creatures are our mistakes that we've made and the stories that we tell about ourselves and, and the meaning that we've created behind the things that have happened and back to the meaning in life, right? That, that it's, not, it's not just that we create good meanings all the time, right? Sometimes an event happens in our life and we create a horrible meaning out of it. You know, we say, you know, that, that somebody 
hurt us really deeply. Uh, and maybe the meaning that you take out of that is I'll never love again, you know, like, because that person hurt me. And so you've created this meaning out of an event of your life. You've created this interpretation um, that might not necessarily be accurate. And so the creatures are those demons inside of us that we create, the story, the destructive stories that we tell about ourselves are those demons. But it doesn't say that explicitly, right? I mean, it, the demons, it, it, it alludes to that by the name of the demons. By the name of the demons. Yeah, and the also name. the quote, the, the, when and the, quote. the rabbi says to the other rabbi, it's not these demons that you should be afraid of, it's what's inside of right, you that right. you should be afraid of. Your own fears right. you should be afraid of. Um, so it doesn't say it explicitly, right. but, but it's alluded to. Yeah, yeah, right? And in the name, and, and if we had continued to read that text, it would have gone, it goes more into the, the interpretation of the word yamim and, and relating it to time. Um, but I wanted to bring this other thing in here too, which is like the idea that when you die, you know, you're going to be called to reckon for um, all of those bad days that you created in your life, right? All of the negative um, interpretations of, of the days of your life. Um, so, wait. <laughs> right, sounds so a lot like the like Egyptian Book of the Dead, like um, you know the kind of tribunal that you enter yes, and it's very your similar. heart is weighed against you know your, your deeds and. I think a lot. I mean, it, it you know it comes from the same geographic region and you know the same general culture of the Middle East. Um, so yeah, I think and there's also a Persian version of that um, where. Uh, that you would also come before a court when you die and there would be a prosecutor and there would be a defense. Um, but they go very deeply into this in, in the Zohar and Kabbalah. They say, um, so sometimes they'll, they'll, they interpret it this way. They say that, that through your life you create a garment, like all of the deeds of your life, you create like a, a, a coat and that they look at the coat and they see if it's like, you know, really in shambles and like falling apart, and you know, they, they then they you know judge you based on that. Um, there's also this idea of of your days coming before you, and and then there's an all, also the idea of your deeds coming. That if you do good deeds in this world, that they turn into like these advocates for you, these like defense attorneys mm -hmm. that defend you when you come to this court, um, or they or they'll turn into prosecutors who will prosecute you. Um, but it's not just when we die, right? I think part of what they're saying is within our lives we do this. And I have another text I wanted to bring on, bring out. second hopefully we'll find this text okay 
uh, where it says 121. This is part one of the Zohar, page 99b. So while a person is in this world, page one twenty one. Yep. Second oh, paragraph. So while a person is in this world, he neither considers nor contemplates the foundation of his existence. Rather, he regards each and every day as if it passes into emptiness. When a soul departs this world, which way she will be wafted is unknown, because the way ascending to the realm of radiance, where supernal souls shine is not extended to every soul. For as one draws down upon himself in this world, so is he drawn upon departing. All right, so let's look at footnote number 36. As one draws himself down upon himself, see Babylonian Talmud, Yoma 39a. Our rabbis taught you not defile yourself with them and thus become defiled, Leviticus 11.43. If one defiles himself slightly, he is, gr he is defiled greatly below if he is defiled from above in this world, he is defiled in the world to come. Our rabbis taught, hallow yourselves and you will be holy. If one sanctifies himself slightly, he is sanctified greatly. Below, he is sanctified from above. In this world, he is sanctified in the world to come. So there's this idea that, and it's not just in death, it's also in your life, that your life goes according to how you want it to go. How, what your tendencies that you're pushing it to go, right? So, um, for as one draws down upon himself in this world, so he is drawn upon departing. So if you're, if you're constantly being negative, you're gonna draw negativity towards you. If you're, if you're callous and insensitive, you're gonna have, draw callousness and insensitivity towards you. That there's this idea that, that we create our own reality with our perception of that reality. Um, so, uh, do you want to keep reading? Sure. <clears throat> Come and see. If a person is drawn toward the Blessed Holy One, his desire pursuing him in this world, then afterward, when he departs, he is drawn towards him and extended away to ascend, following the attraction down daily, no, drawn daily, asp aspiringly in this world. Uh, Rabbi Abba said, one day I happened upon a certain town formerly inhabited by children of the East, and they told me some of the wisdom they knew from ancient days. And so there's no coincidence here, I, I think, that they're talking about the children of the East. This is like Eastern philosophy, Eastern religion. And clearly there's a relationship here. Like much of Kabbalah is, is similar to a lot of Buddhist thought, a lot of Taoist thought, um, many of the ideas are similar uh, and this basic idea of kind of you create your own reality that that's a very buddhist idea you know that 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 there's no essential reality there's no essential meaning to the world that it's kind of empty and meaningless but that we with that empty and meaningless fill it up with our own creation of meaning and whatever creation whatever we want to create that's what we live in right? the world that we that we are creating uh, through our interpretation of reality, that's the world we live in. But so, if we, know, if we really uh, approach reality, we know this is not so. Because there are forces outside ourselves 
<clears throat> that create problems or whatever. Uh, so we can't do it all by ourselves. I think that that's true, but there's also a certain, uh, there's a certain extent to like, you can't choose what happens to you in this world and, and whether, and there's no essential meaning to it, but you can choose how you react. That, yes. Right, and you can choose the story that you tell about that thing that happens. Right, so back to that story about, you know, the person who uh, left somebody, you know, who they loved. They can say, oh, I'm worthless and I'm meaningless, I'm not lovable. That's the story you could create out of that. Or you could create the story of, okay, just didn't work out. You know, or the, there's an infinite number of stories you could create. But you live into that story that you create. Right? The words that we say about ourselves and our lives and our life story is what creates our further life story as it, as it progresses forward. But when you open the newspaper every day, you see that people are the victims of tragedy that they didn't create. Absolutely. And, and so, right, so if you want to bring it back to, to, to current events, right, mm -hmm. what happened to the people in Paris was horrible and, and tra traumatic and all of those things. Now, they can step away and they can choose how they're going to react to that. Are they going to go now go be angry and go turn the Middle East into a parking lot with bombs? Because that's one way to do it, right? To, to, to give in to the anger and the fear and, and to create this narrative that we're at war with the Muslim world and it's this you know, dark versus light conflict. You know, That's one way to do it. Right? Another way to do it is to say, there's gray areas. These people were crazy. You know, they were influenced by a, a toxic philosophy um, that we should now step up and we should not be afraid. And we should you know, not give in to fear, which leads to anger, which leads to hatred, which leads to the dark side of the force. You know, as, as uh, Yoda once said, the great Master Yoda once said. Um, so, so, right, so you can see, you can look at the newspaper and you can open it up and you can, and, and based upon how you react, or even if you're experiencing it, right, like if you're, like if you're in the middle, like I was in New York on September 11th, 2001, you experience it and then, and then after the experience, you create your interpretation of that experience, right? Back to what it said before, like everything that happens in the world has a deeper meaning. Right? There's, there's always a deeper meaning that you can get to, but the deeper meaning is what we create. So we can choose to create fear and anger and hatred, or we can choose to create compassion and love and goodness. There, there is a, an even deeper level that, that, is, that is, that, that's hard for me to sometimes grapple with, and that is, you know, there was an interview in the New York Times with young with some young refugees. And their level of depression is huge among, among some of these, you know, especially young Syrian refugees, really huge. And, and the level of despair on life is, is huge. So you, so you read these 20, you know, some year olds who, you know, barely, barely want to continue with their lives, you know, that that's that's a real, you know, that, that's a real hard, um, hard, I think, place to have a transformative 
you know, and a hopeful right. view, you know, and yet, and yet there are, there are people in those, cir in, circum in those circumstances who are able to, you know, Joe read this book, what is it, by Victor? Uh, Victor Frankel. Victor Frankel, yeah. Man's you know, Search for Meaning. In the concentration camp. Man's Search for Meaning by and Victor he, Frankel. You know, oh, he, and he found meaning Frankel. even in a concentration camp by doing charitable acts for other people. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's, it's, I think it's really hard to project ourselves in that kind of situation, right. you know, when and, we have certain freedoms. Right, right? and we can't be saying, Oh, those people who are experiencing it—they have to just—they have to interpret right. it in a right. in a great way, and right. you have to right. make the most meaning out of it. No, that's why I said that. You know, when somebody when somebody's are, is right in the state of mourning, you don't tell them that there's meaning there, right? The, there's a Talmudic passage I forget what it is. That it's, it's like when the when somebody's dead is lying before them, you don't you don't tell them that they're it's almost directly, you don't tell them that there's some deeper meaning to, to their suffering, right? You, you, you tend to them, have compassion for them, and when you're in the thick of the experience, only like the greatest, like Viktor Frankl, can be like, okay, I'm gonna step outside this for a minute, you know, <laughs> out of this horrible experience where they're you know, torturing my people, and I'm gonna somehow try and create meaning out of it. That, you know, but, but on retrospect, you know, it, it, we do create meaning. I mean, you're going to be creating meaning all the time. But the meaning is not always good meaning. Well, the hope is to create, is to, is to transform bad things that happen to you into some sort of something meaningful that will create more positivity in the world rather than create more cycles of violence and negativity in the world. So what did the Holocaust teach us? Oi. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think, I think one of the things that you could learn from it is what Viktor Frankl learned, which is that when you're going through these horrible experiences, that the meaning comes from your desire to help others within that, within that difficult situation. Um, I heard a speaker once who talked about, you know, where was God on the death marches? And they said God was in the people holding each other up who were falling asleep. And, and, and walking so tightly together that they were able to hold each other up, that was where God was, was the people helping the other people in that, in that moment. There's a, I, I don't remember who's, oh, I, I think it's a, a Mr. Rogers quote. It's one of those memes that I saw that it says, like, when, when you see horrible things happening, you should look for the helpers, because the helpers are the people who are, you know, really representing the God or whatever. So that, I mean, so that it might be one meaning, right? But, but I don't think... I don't think there is one meaning to dictate out of it. Or, and I think it's, that's one of the tragedies in the world that it's very hard to say here's a meaning, there's a meaning to that. Um, I wouldn't go so far as to say you know, that what some ultra-Orthodox people say, which is you know, it was teaching the Jews a lesson. You know, or, right. Uh, right. That is like, whoa, I'm not going to go there. But, um, and I think in a way that's, that's, a, that's a destructive sort of meaning. Yeah. Right, that it creates that creates more division than it does, you know. It creates blame. Yeah. Um, all right. So, do you want to keep reading this text, or uh, we have about fifteen minutes? We can move on to something else, or uh, this is going to talk a little bit more about the uh, the children of the east and the relationship between Kabbalah and the children of the east. All right. I'll keep reading here. Um, 
So Rabbi Abba said, one day I happened upon a certain town formerly inhabited by children of the East, and they told me some of the wisdom they knew from ancient days. Mm. They had found their books of wisdom, and they brought me one, in which is written, in which was written, and here's the spiritual teaching, right, that we just talked about. As one's aspiration is directed in this world, so he draws upon himself a spirit from above corresponding to the aspiration to which he cleaves. If his aspiration focuses on a spirit super, supernal entity, he draws that entity from above to himself below. If he aspires to cleave to the other side, focusing there, meaning the dark side of the force, um, then he draws that from above to himself below. They said the essence of the matter depends on words, action, and the aspiration to cleave, whereby the side to which one cleaves is drawn from above to below. Meaning it's not just when you die, right? That, that in this lifetime, as you're drawing things, you actually draw things to you. I mean, this is kind of an oversimplified, the, the secret, you know that book, The Secret, that came out a number of years ago? Law is of Attraction. Kind of, yeah, The Law of Attraction. It's kind of an oversimplified view of this, this statement, right? Which is that we draw to ourselves that which we kind of create in our lives, right? And so if you're creating positivity and compassion and that that's what you're going to attract to yourself that movie really bothered me. the it movie bothered so me and, and the book so bothered me too money right you know, and, they, they had so yeah. many stories of people right who became I, you know really rich and by, and know, also it's it's super literalist yeah, too right yeah, that yeah. that it's like if you know if you if you meditate on a car yeah. you're going to get the car. Yeah, exactly. Right? Or, exactly. right? They had this guy like laying on his bed and he had a picture of like a yacht or something above his bed and he was looking at it every day, you know. But so I wouldn't go with like that. But I would say in terms of our mental, spiritual, psychological life that, that if we are focused on the negative, we're going to draw more negativity towards us. Uh, Reb Nachman had a great quote. He said, if you say to God... Uh, it's so horrible. God will say, "I'll show you how horrible it can no, get." What horrible is and it? and if you say, "Look how good it is," God will say, "I'll show you how good it can get." Right? That 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 there's a certain power that we have to create our reality, our emotional and psychological reality, by what we, you know, the way we perceive it. Um, it has a lot to do with frequency, vibrational things like. Negativity is very low vibrational, mm. and positivity is high vibrational. Higher vibration. You know, that's high vibrational stuff kind of wants to go together. I mean, I think it's a, that's a beautiful metaphor, metaphor for how to understand it. But I would, you know, I, I, if I hear a good bass line, you know, it's like very low. It's a very low <laughs> tone, but that might make, make me feel really good, you know? That's a very low vibration, but, but yeah, it kind of gets me in the kishkas, you know, gets me going. So, so I, I like that as a metaphor, um, just like, like uh, you could do a visual metaphor, right? You could say, uh, you could say the same thing with dark, dark colors and light colors, you know? Um, but, I, but I think that that's just to... It's, a, it's another way of, of picturing something that's really hard to grasp, you know, by, by saying, you know, comparing it to light, or comparing it to sound, or comparing it to, you know, often they'll compare uh, things to uh, water. Um, or one of the big things they do in the Zohar is they compare it to people, right? They, say, they, 
they say that the different forces in the world are like the ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, they, and they'll use the text of the Zohar, of the Torah, to uh, kind of interpret how these forces work with each other. Um, let's read a little bit more of this, and then we'll keep, and then uh, maybe one more after this. So, uh, they said the essence of the matter depends on words, action, and the aspiration to cleave, whereby the side to which one cleaves is drawn down from above to below. I found in it all the ritual acts of star worship requisites and how to focus the will upon them, drawing them down. Similarly, with one seeking to cleave to Holy Spirit, for the matter depends on action, words, and aspirations of the heart, focusing on that entity, drawing it toward him from above to below, cleaving to it. They said, as a person is drawn in this world, so is he drawn when departing this world. Whenever he, whatever he cleaves to and is drawn to in this world, so too in that world. If holiness, holiness. If defilement, defilement. If holiness, he is drawn toward that side, cleaves to it above, and it is transformed into an, ordinary, an ordained attendant, ministering before the Blessed Holy One among the angels. So he cleaves above, standing among those holy beings, as is written, I will give you free access among those standing there. So too, correspondingly, if defilement he is drawn toward that side, made like one of them cling, cling, clinging to them, they are called wounds wreaked upon humans. And when he leaves this world, they take him and drag him to hell, to that region where brood of defilement are punished. Those who have defiled themselves and their spirits, afterward he clings to them, becoming a wounder like one of those universal wounders. Uh, I, I, when I read this, I, I thought about um, Jacob's Ladder, the movie. Anybody see that movie? Oh, yeah. The, a while ago, right? So there's this guy uh, who he's coming back from the war, and he's tormented by all these demons who are coming after him. And he sees this chiropractor who uh, at one point says to him um, something about when, when you die, uh, you perceive you can perceive your attachments in this world as demons but once uh, once you kind of reconceptualize them they become angels once you let them go they become angels and they're and they take you to heaven but otherwise they drag you down to hell and it turns out in the movie spoiler alert he's the whole movie he's dead and this is his like last moment as he's as he's dying um, and there's this idea that that we can kind of create these negative forces that, um, yes, they influence in our lives, but the idea here is also that when you die, you know, either your spirit will be pulled down by these negative forces that you've created or will be pushed up by the, by the good forces that you created. Um, so last thing here from this. Um, I said to them, my children, this is close to words of Torah, but you should shun these books. So yes, yeah, all right, the, 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 the children of the East might have some, some wisdom to share, but you should sign these books so that your hearts will not stray after their, these rites, meaning don't follow their, their rituals toward all those sides mentioned here, lest, heaven forbid, you stray from the right of the Blessed Holy One. For all these books deceive human beings, since the children of the East were wise, having inherited a legacy of wisdom from Abraham, who bestowed it upon the children, the, the sons of the concubines. As is written, to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts while he was still alive, and he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the land of the east. Right? So Taoism, Confucianism, Buddhism, they all come from Abraham's children who he sent to the east. And there's little kernels of wisdom in there because they came from Abraham, but don't, don't study them because they're, you know, they're off. 
it. They have some wisdom, but not all wisdom, and you don't want to end up, you know, doing some Buddhist meditation or you or qigong <coughs> god forbid you should be doing qigong you know or, or meditation i said that these guys are going to be leading them qigong in, in, the, in the synagogue <laughs> for all those listening yes come to the qigong uh eastern but we're but we you know we've reclaimed it um so let me, let me find the right one to finish on today and then this class is happening again I think in a couple of weeks start with uh, 265. This is part one of the Zohar, page 137a. reading. But come and see what is written. Like a rose among the thorns, so is my beloved among the maidens. Song of Songs 2-2. Like a rose, assembly of Israel who lies among her host, like a rose among thorns. Mystery of the word, Isaac issues from the side of Abraham, supernal chesed, who acts in love toward all creatures. So uh, I mentioned before the patriarchs are all just symbols for these forces of nature. And the first force of nature, which is Abraham, is chesed, which is like a pure outgoing force. It's pure love, right? So growth, love, um, you know, going outwards, that's all Abraham, chesed. Um, so Isaac, sorry, what was I? Abraham's supernal chesed, acts in love towards all other. Isaac issues from the side of Abraham, which is supernal chesed, but Isaac, is the opposite force, which is severe judgment. Right? So Isaac issues from Abraham, though he is severe judgment. So Abraham, who symbolizes like complete love, like outgoing, like no restrictions, no boundaries, gave rise to Isaac, who's complete opposite, which is he's all boundaried. He's about judgment, strictness, rigor, not about love, about judgment, you know, about um, conservation. It's an in, inward going force. Right, uh, like gravity, or if if Isaac was if uh, these two forces were symbolized as an atom, the nucleus would be Isaac, would be Devura, would be this, this this conservation force, and the electrons going around it would be Chesed, right, which is this free flowing energy. Um, so you have Abraham, which is that force. Out of him comes Isaac. 
And Rebecca, who is Isaac's wife, issues from the, uh, issue, uh, Rebecca issues from the side of severe judgment, but she withdrew from among them and joined Isaac. For although she issues from the side of, uh, of severe judgment, she is mild judgment, a thread of grace dangling from her. Isaac, severe judgment. She, mild, like a rose among thorns. Right, so it's saying basically that Isaac, without Rebecca, his wife, he would have been like out of control judgment. He would have been like really strict and rigorous. It's, by the way, judgment is also associated with the planet Mars and the god Mars, the god of war and blood and all of that stuff. So Isaac would have been really on the side of strict, severe judgment had he not been tempered by his wife, who was this more mild judgment character. Um, so that's just a tiny little teaching. And now, is there a planetary representation throughout the teachings of Zohar? There is. There is. Um, it's not always explicitly defined, but it's easy to figure out. Um, so all of the seven, what are called lower sfirot, there are three. There are ten total. There are three on the top, um, and then there are seven on the bottom. All of those seven uh, are associated with an angel and a planet, um, and it's very easy to figure out what they are. And they rule over a day of the week. Right, because you have seven days of the week, um, and you know it all works like really, really well with the calendar um, and the way that the week works. So, um, yeah, like in Spanish, the, the the days of the week are actually mm -hmm. the planets. Right, moon Monday is Moon Day. Right, uh, Sunday is Sun Day. Right, and so Chesed is Sunday. Right, Chesed that that loving force of Abraham is Sunday, right? Because it's kind of represented by the sun. Moon day, Monday is Gavura, right? Is the, is the second sphere, which is judgment, uh, which corresponds to the moon. Um, and you can go through and, and fit it in, in all of them. Yeah, all of the days of the week, right? And so it, it probably all came from the same source. Um, you know, the, this, these ideas of, of the of the days of the week corresponding to the planets, corresponding to angels. Um, the Kabbalah would say, the Zohar would say, these, are, these forces are what other nations call gods, right? And so they would say that every nation has a god that rules over it, but it's not a god. It's actually one of these spherodes. It's one of these forces. Um, uh, so they say that the god of Rome which is represented by Esau, is Mars, is the planet Mars. Um, anyway, so that's just a little piece of, yeah, and, and it all corresponds. And in Kabbalah, you know, the whole world, everything, you know, you can look up at the stars and you can see how this is encoded in the stars and in the planets and um, even in time in our days of the week. So uh, should we do one last one? And then, let me see, where should I end here? Let's turn to page 423. And this is from this week's Parsha.
Jacob went on his way, and angels of God encountered him. Genesis 32.2. Rabbi Abba opened, male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them Adam, human. Right. This is referring back to that quote from Genesis about the two creation stories. This is the first one. Genesis 5.2. How intensely we should contemplate words of Torah. Woe to the close-minded, close-hearted, and shut-eyed. Look, Torah proclaims before them, Come, eat of my bread, drink of the wine I have mingled. Whoever is simple, turn in here, she says to those devoid of sense. Proverbs 9, 4-5. But, but no one pays attention. Meaning, everybody's just reading the Torah or not reading the Torah, but they're not actually paying attention to like looking at the deeper secrets. Come and see this verse contains supernal mysteries within and without. Right. So this is saying, ah, there's these two creation stories. What's going on? What's the supernal mystery hidden here? Well, male and female, he created them, implying this nuance, implying that nuance, implying that sun and moon share a single bond, for it is written, Bira'am, he created them, as is said, sun, moon, Ahmad, stood still in her lofty abode, implying that Adam and Eve were created as one in a single coupling. So this is the Midrash saying that they were created as this one hermaphroditic being, this, this intersexed being. Um, since they appeared in a single coupling, immediately he blessed them, since blessing abides only where male and female are found. Meaning, and this is a really interesting interpretation here, uh, that we all have male and female aspects inside of ourselves, and and blessing really only abides, and I'm kind of taking a little bit of liberty with this, um, because in their formulation, it, it more had to do with marriage, but blessing only abides where you're balancing your male characteristics and your female characteristics that exist within you. Right? So I, I, I read the Zohar as a very, like, if you can get beyond some of the sexist stuff, that it can actually lead to some very progressive views of gender, which is to say that we all have male and female inside of us, and our task to bring down blessing and to be fully realized people is to balance the male and the female, and to have both present inside of us, and to realize that both are there in us. Yeah. Um, so, since blessing only abide, abides only where male and female are found. Come and see when Jacob first set on a journey to Haran, he was, he was alone, unmarried. What is written, Vayifgai, he entreated the place, but he was answered only in a dream. Now that he was married and accompanied by all those tribes, supernal camps of angels entreated him, as it were, supplicating him, as is written, Vayifgaubo, they entreated him, Genesis 32.2, coming round to entreat him, because by virtue of Jacob and those tribes, they are watered by waters of the vast sea. Further, at first in a dream, now with eyes wide open and daylight is as written when he saw them jacob said this is a camp of god how did he recognize them he saw that they were the same ones he had seen in the dream so he called them machanaim double camps camps manifesting above camps manifesting below why did they appear entreating him because shekhinah approached him to possess the house she was awaiting benjamin to possess the house fittingly along with jacob whereas whereupon is written jacob will return and be calm and secure with no one frightening him, Jeremiah 30.10. So the idea here is that Jacob, when he first has this vision of God, it was, it's just a dream, and, and he can't really connect to God until he integrates the female into himself. And the way he does that is he gets married. He marries, um, he marries Rachel, uh, and Rachel represents kind of the feminine. And then 
she has Benjamin, who's the last child, who's the, of the 12, and then she dies, and then Shekhinah is with him. The, fem- the, the goddess is with him. And so now he's got the feminine within himself, integrated into him, himself as part of him, and he's able to really have a true revelation of God and connect and see that there's an above and below to everything. So, any comments on this before we end? I guess we're good. Thank you all for coming tonight. Um, I think it's good to have a nice intimate crowd, so uh, come again to the next class and hopefully we'll have a very small group. Uh, I'm not sure of the date of the next class, but you can look on the bookmarks or on the website. Um, thank you, guys. Thank, thank you so much. Great, great selection. Oh, of I I get get These guys have agreed to.